welcomed into the kingdom apart from having to go through the law that you chose this mystery that Gentiles were included in your plan of salvation and that we become full recipients and inheritors of the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to David and and that those are given to us in Christ. And so we rejoice as Gentiles being brought into the rich root who is Israel, who is Christ our King, and we were grafted in as wild olives into the rich root of the native olive. And we now bring into ourselves through faith in Christ the glories of all the promises of the Bible to us as a people. Thank you for our salvation. God, help us to be grateful. We thank you for your love. We pray as we study Jeremiah tonight, we'll be convicted about our own sinfulness and tendency to wander. So help us not to be idolaters. Help us to be ones who love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles with me to the book of Jeremiah. I will give you a moment, as we like to do on Sunday evenings, if there was something from this morning's message that you wanted to ask about, we would like to give you that opportunity. And while we're doing that, I'm going to ask David, David, if you would distribute to anyone who didn't get this sort of Israelite history timeline, raise your hand if you don't have a copy of that timeline. Uh, very helpful little guide. Uh, remember anytime you lay hands on a guideline like this that there, a lot of the dates are estimated. We don't have a calendar that says 721 BC. Uh, so you have to do a lot of estimating and the folks who put this together did a really good job. In the yellow you have the, the, uh, life and history of the northern kingdom. In the green, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. So you uh, kind of runs across the top and then starts over again on the bottom left and runs across. There's a key there that kind of tells all the different uh, things that are going on and uh, who the prophets are and who they're prophesying to. And uh, So I think you'll get a lot from that as you consider. We need to back up just a little bit to where we are in Jeremiah and why we're where we are and what's going on politically, nationally during this time and why that would matter. Because a lot of reference is made in the book of Jeremiah to things happening uh, in the, the present time of the event. And so there's talk about Assyria and there's talk about this boiling pot in the north turns out to be the rise of the Babylonian kingdom. And there's talk about Egypt. And so kind of getting up to date on that. If you'll kind of remind yourself of the lay of the land as uh, we kind of get this picture of the Mediterranean Sea. And you've got the Sea of Galilee and you've got the River Jordan and you've got the Dead Sea. You've got Jerusalem, and you've got Samaria, and up here you have Assyria. 
And down here you have Egypt. And then above Assyria up here you have the rise of uh, the Babylonian Empire. Just sort of a rough map of what's going on as we talk and how this is going to have a, a role. What had happened in uh, 722, 721 B.C., so it's about a hundred years before Jeremiah's ministry, you have the Assyrians coming down from the north into northern Israel, into middle Israel, and overtaking the entire northern part of the kingdom of Israel called Israel. And so you see that on your timeline in yellow at the very end where it says, top right, Assyrian captivity. So that has occurred about a hundred years before. We talk to you about from that hundred years before the fact that Israel's southern kingdom, Judah, didn't fall then, and it kept its course for a couple of more invasions. The Assyrians did a total of six different campaigns to establish their kingdom. And every one of those six campaigns somehow involved some section of the nation of Israel. So six different campaigns. The most successful of those campaigns was the 722-721 campaign in which the northern kingdom of Israel fell, refusing to be a vassal state or actually saying they were a vassal state but playing cards with other people at the table. Uh, They finally were overtaken. And then... More Assyrian work happens as they keep pressing, trying to go further south. Egypt kind of holds it in balance. Sometimes Egypt is kind of a foe to Assyria. Sometimes they're um, an ally to Assyria that they will try to be a little bit later. We'll talk about that. But during this time, Israel is divided. It was divided from the time after Solomon was king. And that division runs somewhere like right here. Assyria now holds this. Jerusalem and the capital city down here. And this is not to scale the Dead Sea. It's actually a little bit further down from Jerusalem there. Um, and so you've got this uh, situation where the southern kingdom's gotten real cocky. Essentially what they said is, well, the reason that we didn't fall in 722, 721 is... We have the temple of the Lord. Remember, I kind of shared with you last week, uh, somebody would come out and say, you know, uh, hey, uh, hey, Brent, uh, I heard that uh, there's this boiling pot boiling from the north. And Brent would say, oh, man, come on, we got the temple of the Lord. And Dana would come and say, well, at small group last week, we talked about this boiling pot from the north coming down is going to take over our country. Oh, honey, we got the temple of the Lord. That's never going to happen. She goes back, tells her small group, all those ladies go home. They tell their husbands and their friends. And all of a sudden, everybody's saying, well, we'll never fall because we have the temple of the Lord. Temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. It's going to be a very famous sermon, by the way. Later, Jeremiah, one of his most famous sermons, called the Temple Sermon, when he confronts that statement. But they begin to think that they have this good luck charm because inside, remember, 
What did Israel think was their real good luck charm? Back in when we do the book of Judges and, and Samuel. What did they think was their good luck charm? Ark of the Covenant. You in trouble? Whoop that thing out and carry it into battle. Well, they whooped it out one time, carried it into battle, and what happened? The Philistines put a whooping on them, took the Ark of the Covenant, took it home with them, which was a bad move also. And so, you've got, they think that, and so this mindset's built back up again, and they think, we got the temple, we got the Ark, we're good to go. We're good to go. So they get cocky and they get prideful, and their cockiness and their pridefulness and their sinfulness grows, and what a mess. So we're in the book of Jeremiah, and we've just touched into this great message in chapter 2, which is really the high-water mark sermon of all the sermons that Jeremiah ever gives, is this beautiful picture of who God is, and that He is the fountain of living waters. And so last week we covered, basically, from verse 13 of chapter 2 up to about verse 19 of chapter 2. It's pretty much what we covered. Now, in verses 13 through 19, there's some references. And those references are in verse 18. But now, what are you doing on the road to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what are you doing on the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? So basically, they were, they were looking for help to the north. They were looking for help to the south. And trying to get Egypt to help them, trying to get Assyria to help them, rather than drinking the living waters that God had given them, God just kind of uses a metaphor here. says, you're going to go drink from their dirty rivers? When you have the fountain of living water, why are you turning to them instead of turning to me? This is really important because there's political alliances back then were basically how kingdoms survived. They survived because they had the right alliance. And so you get enough kingdoms together in alliance, and those kingdoms stand together against other kingdoms, and they're able to handle it because they fight together and uh, put their economies together to build great war machines. And, and so that's how they survived. But Israel was never called to sur- survive by its alliances. It was always called to survive by its faith. That was it. And so now what's happening is that Israel's more and more acting like the lost world, the godless world. They're thinking like godless people, rationalizing like godless people, living like godless people, finding security like godless people. So all these things are going on. Well, there's a warning in verse 19, your own wickedness will correct you. We had that last week. And your apostasies will reprove you, know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter. And this is a reference to water. They're going off and drinking the bitter water of the Nile that's going to put them in slavery to Egypt or, or in a, what we would call a vassal state relationship where all their taxes and income gets turned over to the Egyptian treasury in trade for Egypt, not whooping them. Or they're going to do the same thing with Assyria. They're going to turn to Assyria and say, hey, help us. Uh, and, and so they keep selling themselves. And that's the reference in verse 14. Is Israel a slave or is he a homeborn servant? Why has he become a prey? In other words, Israel was free when they served God. 
They were no one's vassal. They were no one's slave. They were enslaved to no kingdom and, and no power except God. And so they had that. And now they've traded that in through their sin and their vassals to these different countries, paying tribute to them, being uh, put into slavery. Sometimes a vassal state kind of, they would come in and they would do this. They would say, hey, uh, here's how we're going to work this deal. Uh, we're going to take uh, 20% of your populace and turn them into servants for our king and our kingdom. And so they would come in and say, we're going to leave the rest of you free, but we're going to take this amount because you're vassals to us now. Your people are actually going to come into our land. They're going to serve us there. And so they would take those people away and they would put them to work there. And so there's all of these things. Their sons and daughters are being taken young and put into ministry in foreign kingdoms. All these things are going on for them to try to survive. And it just keeps taking. And that's the whole cistern idea that's given to us in verse 13. The cisterns are sin, like immorality. Uh, their security, like vassal state. Uh, their significance, like trying to prop themselves up to look like they're powerful when the truth is they're very, very weak. And so they pay a lot of money to look powerful and buy influence and to, to buy um, alliances with other countries. It's just a mess. It's a mess. They've got these cisterns and it's just, it's just wrecked. And so Jeremiah comes in and he says, you guys are really in trouble. You're, you're in so much trouble. And he starts to unwind and, and, and unfold what their trouble is. So when we get to verse 20, we're about halfway through this, this message. And uh, really a little past, about two-thirds of the way through. And, and so God is speaking And we're going to pick up there, in light of these other things, here they are. For long ago, God says, I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds. Where where was that? Egypt. That was Egypt. So when God came in and miraculously delivered the people from bondage in Egypt and set them free. So... The yoke is a reference now that they're under the yoke. That goes back to verse 14. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? They're under the yoke of Egypt. They're under the yoke of Assyria. They're vassal states to them, trying to get Egypt and Assyria to give them protection. And they're going vacillating back and forth because part of the time Egypt's in power. Let's go to them. Part of the time Assyria's in power. So we're talking about 100 years of this kind of mess. And so the Lord says, long ago I broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. So basically what is being said here is, what are you using your freedom for? When God delivered them, remember the thing that Moses said. Thus says Jehovah, let my people go that they may worship me. That was the original request. That they may worship The goal of the freedom was to free them to worship God genuinely 
intimately, relationally. So when Moses first appealed to Pharaoh, it was to let us go into the wilderness and worship. And that was the goal of the freedom, was to free them to worship him. And so they get the freedom. They got it. God gave it to them. And here they are with their freedom. And he says, I broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Then God kind of says, oh, yeah, you're serving. Look at you. For on every high hill and under every green tree, you have lain down as a harlot. Some pretty provocative language there. He said, you're serving. You are serving. You think you're not serving, but you're serving. You think you're free, but you're in bondage. Basically, now you're just a prostitute. As a country, you're a prostitute. And so God uses strong language. It, if you get a good old King James, you get some stronger language. We kind of dress it up uh, in, in the, the New American Standard. But King James says in several of the passages like this, it says, Go a whoring. Strong language. Intended to be. Not to be nasty, but to say, this is what you've reduced yourself to. You are now selling yourself for favors. And so, he said, you're saying you're not serving, but you are serving. You say you're free, but you're not free. You're in bondage. You're in bondage now. Now, the picture he gives is the picture, in verse 20, of what are called high places. This was the lure. This was the thing. It's hard for us to imagine this because we don't have similar things. We have pornography. We have pornography and a lot of people are addicted to pornography. A scary thing. Women are turning to porn now. Back in the day, uh, participation by women was about 2% in pornography. Uh, back in the day being the 60s, early 70s, maybe mid-70s. Uh, what we're finding now is somewhere between 8 and 15% are women, and they believe it's actually more than that, that that's just a, kind of what they call a hidden statistic. Because uh, men are very prone to say, oh, yeah, I look at porn. Uh, women are not prone to say that. And so they think that there's a lot of it hidden. Uh, we have pornography today. Uh, they had living pornography. You go to the high place... And it was living pornography. And everybody could participate. Boys and girls. And they, they had both heterosexual and homosexual um, cult prostitutes working there. Because the high place was a place devoted to the worship of Baal and Asherah. And uh, if you go back and you get some of the figurines from the days of the... Uh, um, the days of the Canaanites, you get some little carvings of women that are uh, uh, their their um, uh, sexual parts are made extra extra big in the carvings because that was the focus of this broken kind of worship. So they carried these trinkets around, uh, and then these these uh, some of these poles were actually what what we call phallic symbols. That's, I hate to even say that. But that's what this was. It was like living pornography. 
It included drinking. It included really nice food. Uh, there's a couple of um, references in the prophets to a thing called raisin cakes. So you get this this moment where one of the prophets goes, oh, how you love the raisin cakes. And we, through research, found out that the raisin cakes were kind of like the delicacy served at the at the cultic prostitution sites. And so it was like part of the party. And there were, you know, people back then, the agricultural life and very often very lean living. And you go up to the this place and give your offering. And man, you're... You see, eat, drink, and be merry is what's going on there, and it's really bad. And the thing is, is it's popping up, okay? We start with one and say, oh man, well, yeah, we've got one in New Orleans, okay? So everybody's kind of going to New Orleans, but all of a sudden we find out, man, you know, it's a long way to drive to New Orleans. Well, they'll put one in Baton Rouge. Well, it's a shorter drive. It's about half as far. Well, now they're going to put one in Alexandria. Great, man, that's like 15 minutes from my house. Now we're going to put one in your neighborhood. So he says... On every high hill and under every green tree. This stuff starts getting set up in everybody's neighborhood. So that in your neighborhood you have your own cult and living pornography. So it's increasing and moving into the villages. It's moving across the land. It started with the Canaanites. It evolved And now it's back where it is, and it's really, really heartbreaking what is going on here. And so what he's saying is, you say that you're not going to serve, but you're actually in bondage. It's a great picture of sin in North America. We have people who pride themselves on saying, well, I don't have anything to do with organized religion. I don't want the bondage of all those rules, but then they're in bondage. They're in bondage to sin, and they're in slavery to sin. And they say that they're free, but they're actually slaves. And so, verse 21, he says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. In other words, when I started you guys with Abraham, um, when I brought you through and then I took you through Egypt and brought you out, I gave you opportunity for a fresh start, a clean start. Choice vine. Beautiful picture. He says, How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Interesting. The picture that he's given is kind of of this vineyard that's really beautiful. And that the, the vineyard keeper planted this vineyard and it was choice. I mean, the grapes on this thing were just fantastic. And somebody introduced and twisted and, and, and interbred this vine. And now it's not a fruitful vine anymore. It's, it's like this. Um, the, the idea is the idea that it's turned into a weed that is creeping into everything. It's kind of gone from a wine uh, 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 source, this great grapes, to, to like kudzu that's covering everything. All right? That's what's happening. And he's going, how did you get from a vineyard to kudzu? How did you get there? And so it's really sad. Verse 22, he tells how bad it is. He says, although you wash yourself with lye, you you got to remember, 
Beverly Hillbillies and lye soap, don't you? Granny making lye soap. And uh, I'll never forget in, um, there's this one moment in the Beverly Hillbillies where they're with Granny. And I can't remember who is interacting with um, with Granny, but uh, they look at her skin and they said, what happened to your skin? She says, well, I wash it every day with my homemade lye soap. And the feel of her skin, they say, it's like leather. And she said, isn't that great? Because <laughs> for her idea, being tough was the, the way to go, you know. It's not being frail. Well, It says, though you wash yourself with lye. In other words, you can, you can break out the good soap. And it is not going to wash off of you. It says, and you use much soap. The stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord. Now, think about what's happening inside Israel. You have Israel who was brought out of the wilderness, and they were taught what the holiness of God was, the worship of God was, the nature of God. They were revealed to them the goodness of God. He, he gave them his personal first name. You know, when he said, I am Jehovah, he introduced himself personally to them. He makes a covenant with them. And he has all of this relationship where he says, I'll, I'll be your God, you be my people, I'll keep you. And he makes all these promises to them. Over and over, these wonderful promises. And, and then he gives them these warnings and and they start letting these very things that he warned them of sneak back into their lives. So much so that by the time we're in the book of Jeremiah, there is not a facet of their life that has not been invaded. Not a single facet. They're now presenting their own children in sacrifice to the gods. They're now thinking that the rite of passage for their son is to accompany dad on a trip to the high place. They're now thinking that these foreign gods, these idols are actually their masters. They say to a stone, you made me, to a tree, you're my father. He's going to say that in just a moment. And so it's touched everything. Now, one of the warnings I want to give you at this place, and I think this is part of what Jeremiah is going to help us see, is that you, we, as human beings, uh, we cannot cordon off sin in our lives. We can't um, limit the impact and the spread of sin once it has gained entry into our heart. What they kind of thought was we can hold God over here, family over here, Government over here and our gods and goddesses of frivolity and sensuality over here. And they kind of thought we can manage that. And what happened is, is this, this sinfulness invaded every aspect of their life. It, 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 I call it the stinky fish syndrome. I've told you the story about Miss Martin. Have I told you all that story? Miss Martin and the fish. I haven't told you all that story. Uh, when I was in, uh, Miss Martin, what grade was I in? I think I was in sixth grade. No, 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 no. I was in ninth grade. I had a homeroom teacher named Miss Martin. 
and uh, she was a jewel, by the way. She's one of the reasons I love school teachers so much because I don't know how she didn't kill us. She loved us. And so we were in biology, doing what you do in biology, you dissect things. That was not any fun. So in our, in our fun of dissecting a fish, we thought, we'll take this fish and put it in Ms. Martin's locker in her, in her filing cabinet. So we got a folder and wrote fish on it. <laughs> and we brought it to her classroom. We put that fish in, inside our filing cabinet. Now, thankfully, it was a formaldehyded fish, you know, uh, so it, it did stink, but it it was kind of slow at decay. And so Miss Martin started smelling, started smelling that fish because you can't hide a dead fish. I just, it doesn't matter what you do, you can't hide it. And so it started making the whole room smell kind of funny. So she started trying to follow the odor around and finally tracked it down to the filing cabinet. And thankfully, we had labeled the folder so she could find it easily. And so she finds this folder that says fish. And I wish I'd had a video of her at that point because she was by herself, I'm imagining, in her room going, I'm going to kill some people. But she knew who did it. The the thing is, she knew who did it immediately. It's like, why would she think of me? And so we got some detention out of the deal. But uh, there's no way you can hide a, a dead fish. You can file your sin in any filing system you have, but it will not stay in that folder. It won't. This is the thing I keep seeing over and over in people's lives, but it's here. And they thought they could, that the high places were like rec. Okay? This is recreation. It really is not going to affect how we run our family. And then the next thing you know, the boy's turning 13, and the dad says, Son, here's what we'll do for your bar mitzvah. I'm going to take you to the high place. Well, the kids watched dad all his life go to the high place and party up and sleep with the prostitutes and all that. And so the son's like, yeah. So now he's ready. It's touched every aspect. It's touching marriage and family and husbands and wives. It's touching how sexuality is viewed. All this is going on, all tied to the fact that they will not forsake these gods. This is the way Satan works. He works by... Luring us with things that lure us. I mean, if sin, if, if, by, if sin was like an electric shock, not a lot of us would line up for it. If, if sin was like horrible, t- terrible pain in its very first thing, we probably wouldn't get into it a lot. But sin is very pleasurable, and so Satan uses those things to lure people along the way. And so, they're hung in this, and they're still denied. Here's the other thing. Two things tonight. First, uh, I want you to just infectious nature of sin. This is a theme that Jeremiah is going to bring through all of his writings. Do not toy with sin. I think of the number of people I've watched wreck their lives with things that they thought they could handle. It's like, wow. The infectious nature of sin. The other thing is the denial that follows it. There is something about human stupidity. Okay, Jesus did not compliment us when he called us sheep. Being called a sheep is not a compliment. Today, 
The truth is, it's finally come back around to people using the word sheep in a derogatory term, kind of like it, it did in the, in the New Testament times. It, it's a favorable term in the term of love of a shepherd to sheep, but it's a derogatory term when somebody says, you're just like a sheep. I hear people today, they even use the term sheeple, like sheep people, sheeple. And it's about the tendency we have to follow people wrongly. Um, and so... Uh, Sheep are, they're dumb. They are not called king of the jungle. You know? Nobody goes, man, I'm really scared of sheep. I think the sheep are going to get me. They're just not, that's not the category. They're dumb. They're, They're insanely inquisitive. And they're easily distractible. They're the ADHD king and queen of the animal kingdom. And so, when Jesus calls us these things, he's calling us those things because humans are dumb. He's not trying to make us feel stupid. He knows we're stupid. We, we, we are wrecking our lives and running toward hell intentionally apart from him. There is nothing stupider in the universe. We are wrecking ourselves and running toward hell with our sinfulness. That's the, that's the whole human race is doing that. Headlong. If God didn't step in, we would willingly run toward hell, every one of us. That's how we are. And so, the thing that comes along with this infectious nature of sin and how it starts getting pervasive into the whole of our life is the the tendency to deny that we have a problem. I do a, a more counseling probably than, than I'm either qualified for or want to, but I do want to do counseling because I love helping people. Um, and I enjoy helping folks kind of see and understand. But the number one issue I ever deal with in counseling is the tendency of humans to deny what the real problem is. I've found that mm, maybe 70, 80% of the time when I first talk to a person who has a problem, they're actually not telling me what the problem is. They're telling me the symptoms of the problem. And by God's grace and mercy, often we're able to dig through the symptoms and get down to the root of the problem. And that's when things start getting better. That's when change comes, is when we get down to the root and the gospel touches the root and, and, and life is changed. These people are still in denial. Look, look at what happens. Verse 23. How can you not, how can you say, I'm not defiled? I've not gone after the Baals. In other words, these people are so vain in their understanding of how they present themselves that they don't know that God sees everything. They're kind of like, Jeremiah, you never saw me up there. And so God's like going, I see everything. So then he starts to reveal it. And by the way, it's going to get graphic for a minute. So we'll do eye wash after the service. Okay, here we go. 
um, says, how can you say, I'm not defiled? I've not gone after the Baals. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift young camel entangling her ways. A wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness who sniffs the wind in her passion. In the time of her heat, who can turn her away? All who seek her will not become weary. He compares it to an animal in heat who's driven to reproduce. I was driving through Pineville one day. Every now and then, God just gives me graphic pictures of doom. And I hate them. I'm driving through Pineville one day, and there's a dog in heat. And there's about five or six male dogs following her. And she's walking through Pineville, and uh, she's up by where the Cleco. I'm going up toward First Baptist Church, and there's that little Cleco office on the left in Pineville. And, and she, she hits that place, and I'm back here good ways, and she turns and crosses the road, and there, there's uh, one car in front of me, and she makes it across. Those male dogs following her don't even look. She's the only one who looks. She looks, and she goes just fast enough to pass the car, and the car can't stop. It just runs right over the, the male dogs. And the Lord just, just said to me in my heart, says, this is how bad humans are. We're walking into a similar doom in the same way. We need to get it. And this is what Jeremiah is picturing here. He's picturing people so driven by um, fundamental passions that they're just unstoppable. This is a good picture of the broken sexual picture we have in the United States today where people are tying their identity to their sexual urges and saying, because I have these urges, I'm going to embrace a certain identity. And, and therefore, I'm going to, to chase hard after that identity and, and, and immerse myself in that identity because, because I feel it so strongly. He's saying, yeah, the feelings are strong. doesn't mean they're right. And so here, how can you say, I am not defiled? I've not gone after the bells. Look at your way in the valley. God's saying, I saw you. I watched. Jeremiah didn't have to be there and see it. I saw you. There's this moment in the show Christie. Y'all remember the show Christie? Did y'all watch that? I thought it was pretty good. It was a little cheesy at times, but I thought it was pretty good. And I've always had a love for that region of the Appalachians. I've done a lot of riding and driving and cycling up in that region, and I love being up there. So I was kind of enamored with the show, especially how it was filmed in such a beautiful area up there. And so um, I watched all the shows probably ten times uh, over the years, and. I remember there's this one episode where um, they're about to kill somebody. All the men in the community have gathered, and they're about to kill somebody, and they've all got their guns on him. I think it's when this man takes the, somebody hostage. And, and so they, uh, they are all sitting there. They've got their guns pointed at him. And now, um, Miss, oh, what is her name? That's not Christy, but the lady who's her boss. Y'all help me, help me with her name from Christy. Boy, that name just fell out of my head. Anyway, she's the lady that's Christie's boss that runs the, 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 the ministry there uh, to the children and to the school. And 
She walks out and she's a pacifist. She comes from an old Quaker heritage. And so she's a pacifist and she doesn't want them to use their weapons. And so, by the way, in another episode, she does get her gun out. Uh, but, but she, and she just walks up and she said, God sees you. God sees every one of you. And it's a very good episode because the persuasiveness of her voice in those few minutes awakened the consciences of men who have become murderous. And suddenly they see how murderous they've become and they start setting their guns down. They don't really need to kill this guy. They need, they need to apprehend him. He needs to see justice, but they don't really need to kill him. Not, not, that's not what's going, what the call for the moment is. And so they, they start, it starts clicking in their brains that God actually is watching what they do. Jeremiah is trying to get that across these people. When nobody else is looking, God is looking. Draw, draw that back to the end of verse 19. And the dread of me is not in you. I want to share with you something that is very important. I shared it last week. I'll probably share it every week from here on. No fence that you can build will restrain you if you do not fear God. No fence you can build will restrain you if you do not fear God. In other words, you can get accountability. You can get internet filters. Uh, you can get small groups to help you. You can you can call in every force that you need, which I, I'm for all those things in keeping us from sexual sin and immorality. I'm for all those things. But until the fear of God rests in our heart, we'll always find a way to dig under the fence, jump over the fence, or cut through the fence. Cliff. Yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's a good word. And so Jeremiah says, "That's you're running wild because you don't fear the Lord." And one of the things that I always work with in counseling or encouraging or teaching is to to help us understand that we're all going to we're going to appear before God, and we're going to give an account. And that's why when you have that passage in 2 Corinthians, it says, uh, we will all stand uh, before the judgment seat of Christ, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, I think verse 10. Uh, stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that he may render to each of us according to what we have done, whether good or evil. And the next verse simply says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. I love that. Paul says, we know what we're talking about fearing God. We fear God. (laughs) And so we're persuading you. You need to fear God. What does the fear of God do? It causes us to turn to Him rather than away from Him. True fear of God always convinces us there is no way to get away from Him. You must get to Him. So true fear of God always turns our heart toward reconciliation. And so... They're saying, I'm not defiled. I've not gone after the Baals. Well, you get that picture in verse 24. Pretty strong. 
Verse 25. Keep your feet from being unshod. (laughs) For us, we're like, what? I like taking my shoes off. Slaves were marked by not being allowed to wear shoes. You take your slave into the marketplace, you have your slave work for you in any place. He or she would always work without shoes on. That was their mark. If there was no other mark you put on them of your ownership, it was that they didn't have shoes on their feet. And he's saying, if you want to stay out of slavery, you're going to have to deal with both of these things. First, how deep sin has crept into your life, into your thinking, into your reasoning, and the fact that you are in denial of it. We work with folks who uh, have different addictions in our steps ministry. And one of the great steps that anybody ever gets to is to leave denial and get into confession and acceptance of their own responsibility of what they've done with their lives. And that's always a beginning of healing. Verse 25, keep your feet from being unshod in your throat from thirst. Uh, this is another thing that God would do is he would bring famine. When you get into the book of Amos, let's go there for a moment and kind of show you how God pictures this. Um, Go to Amos chapter 4. And God is speaking through Amos. Uh, He's speaking to the northern kingdom before it collapses. You can see his short little ministry up in the upper right-hand corner under the reign of Jeroboam II, Zechariah, uh, Shalom, and Manaam on the yellow line, top right corner. Um, You can see Amos there. Listen to God describing what he would do to northern Israel Prior to their fall. Verse 6. But I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Cleanness of teeth means if you don't eat, you don't have anything to brush. (laughs) You know. Uh, If there's no food, there's no plaque. Alright? If you fasted for a month and went to the dentist the beginning of the month, the end of the month, dentists would say, Wow, you've been doing really well. (laughs) Uh, Because your teeth would be clean, basically, of all the normal stuff that would build up on your teeth. Um, so he says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Furthermore, verse 7, I withheld the rain from you when there were yet three, three months to harvest. Then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the other part rain, not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water. But you would not be satisfied... You have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching uh, wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword. 
with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me. So you've got this picture of God bringing discipline, and nobody gets it. It's like the rebellious teenager that you discipline who knows deep in their heart they're wrong, but brazenly they look at you and say, I didn't do anything wrong. I just need to get out of this house and get out from under your authority. That's what they were saying to God. We didn't do anything wrong. We just need to get out from under your yoke. You're just too harsh. So, back to Jeremiah. This is really powerful. He says, keep your feet from being unshod, okay, slavery, and your throat from thirst, uh, famine. But you said, it is hopeless or it is desperate. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them I will walk. This is just sheer unrepentance. It couldn't be any more clear. The Lord is speaking to them. He's talking to them. He's, he's encouraging them. He's, he's imploring them. And they're like, nah. I don't think so. I remember counseling with a fellow one time who uh, was involved in, in sin. And essentially, as I spoke to him, he communicated to me that he just deserved more in life than God was giving him. So he was going to have to go another route other than God's way to get what he was after. And I can remember trying to explain to him the, the, the insanity of that logic. But what had happened is he had gotten into a particular sin. It had become infectious and it even clouded his thinking. And he was in sheer denial. that He was wrecking his whole life. And so here is that denial. And they say, no. No, it's hopeless. We're desperate for what we want. For I've loved strangers and after them I will walk. I will follow them. This is really incredulous. One minute they're saying, we're not defiled. And the next minute they're saying, we'll walk after those gods. We're not coming back to you. This is what I call the insanity of sin. Because what happens is sin makes us insane in this way. It causes us to stop using any logic whatsoever. When I'm talking with people whose family members of theirs have gotten into sin, and the people are just at the breaking point, and they'll say, this just doesn't make sense. How could they? And I say, time out, listen. Sin never makes sense. You're not going to logic this thing out. It just becomes stupidly impulsive. And so, here it is. Now, take a look at how he deals with it. I'm just going to mention a couple more things in the stop for some questions. I think we'll run all the way down uh, to 29 and we'll stop there. As the thief is shamed when he is discovered, 
So the house of Israel is shamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests. Remember the list of leaders that he got onto earlier in chapter 2? He said, all these people are not following me. They're not leading you to follow me. So here's the list again. The kings, the princes, the priests, the prophets, all these facets of society. And he's saying, so the house of Israel is shamed. But listen, it's not ashamed. You need to think that through. God is shaming them, but they're not ashamed. I heard somebody on out in the internet land, I followed some interesting and good people on Twitter and listened to some of their dialogue and uh, someone was trying to say that God never uses shame. My brothers and sisters, God does use shame. Shame is God's way of turning us back to the cross. In fact, in the New Testament, there are passages that say those things you turned away from, of which now you are ashamed. Being ashamed and having God shame us is never bad. And God is not manipulatively shaming, seeking only to embarrass us for the sake of vengeance. That's not how he's operating. God shames us for the sake of repentance. And so as a thief is shamed when he is discovered, how is he shamed? He's brought out publicly and exposed. God is now going to bring Israel out publicly and he's going to expose them. How's he going to do it? That boiling pot. That boiling pot. See, what's happening now at this point in the journey The Babylonian Empire is on the rise, and the word is getting out. As the word gets out, Israel starts to feel nervous. Southern kingdom, northern kingdom's vassals and already deported into Assyria. They get word, and they start going, hey, Egypt, will you help us if the Babylonians come after us? We'll pay you just handsomely for your help. Assyria, will you be the stopping point to keep Babylon? So that's why they're running to drink the waters of the of the Nile and to drink the waters of the Euphrates, because this empire is coming up. It's going to march south. Assyria is going to fall around 607 B.C. during Jeremiah's life and ministry. Egypt is going to try to come and help them, and they're going to lose too. Babylon's going to whoop Assyria going to whoop Israel and going to whoop Egypt. And Israel, Judah is going to be exposed. They're going to be exposed for what they are. And so basically God is saying, you know what I'm about to do? I'm about to bring the thief out of his hiding, out into the public square, and I'm going to publicly shame him. How did they shame him? Well, they would strip him, not Always completely, but at least the upper half. And they would whip them. They called it the rod for the fool's back. And they would give them a public whipping. It was a public shaming. Now, whether the person felt ashamed or not is not said, but it was a public shaming. God is going to drag Israel out of the dark recesses of its sin, out into the public, and let her fall completely to expose what's really wrong with her. She 
is a harlot. And God's about to bring all this about. And so he says, here's what you've sunk to. Verse 27. Who say to a tree, you are my father. He's picturing idols and these high trees that they grew in these high places that they would pretend was their maker, their father, their originator, and they would call it a life tree or a, give it some kind of name of a God. It says, and to a stone, you gave me birth. <laughs> and God's saying, you're that stupid. Now, I hate to say it, but it's true. We are that stupid. And apart from the grace of God in Christ, we would wreck our souls in the same way. I mean, we could sit here and get really prideful about all those knuckleheads in, in, in Jerusalem, but we're, we're knuckleheads too. And were it not for the grace of God coming and appearing to us, we would destroy ourselves. And so he says, For they have turned their back to me and not their face. This was a show of um, contempt. To not face somebody. To give their back. In some of the cultures that we do international mission work, uh, we never can show our back to the audience. You have to always face the audience. If I was going to go walk to the board, uh, I would have to just keep talking and never show you my back and I would have to write without ever turning my back to you because in those cultures to give your back to somebody is rude, very offensive. There are cultures that you don't point. When you point, it's a very, very offensive thing. It's like stunning. It's like giving the bird to somebody, you know. It's really offensive. And so you have to learn those things. Well, in this culture, the the back is, is to say, I disregard you. That's what you're saying. I disrespect you. And so he says, they, rather than turning their face to me, they turned their back. But here's what happens. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. So what's happening is that this trouble is going to come finally. And when it does come, God's going to give them several opportunities for repentance in the book of Jeremiah. But then one day in the book of Jeremiah, God is going to say something to Jeremiah that's hard for us to digest. He's going to tell Jeremiah, stop praying for this people. He's actually going to tell him, we're going to read it. He's going to say it. Stop praying for him. What is done is done. And this is probably the scariest moment in the book of Jeremiah. But the prophets are going to them. Jeremiah is not alone in this. The prophets are going to them. And they're sharing the people are refusing, refusing, refusing. So, when it all finally does come, they're all going to go out into the streets going, God, save us! And he's going to say this, verse 28. But where are your gods, which you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you. This is scary. 
For God to say, I'm done. I mean, you think about when God introduced Himself to Israel, one of the character traits that He gave was, I'm long-suffering. He says it. He proclaims it to Moses. And calls Himself long-suffering. Patient. But at this point, His patience runs out. And judgment comes. I think... And, and I'll, I'll mention one more thing before we finish this section and then call for questions just in after. Uh, I think that one of the things we fail to deal with when we're doing evangelism um, is to help people grasp everyone's time is limited. There is a drop-off point for everybody. Whether it is the day that God says, I'm done with that, or just the day of death. I don't know how God deals with every individual. I know that He is just and He's merciful, but everybody is born with an expiration date. And one of the, the burdens of our evangelism has to be to help people understand, you don't have forever to straighten this out. I'll walk with you as you straighten it out. I will do whatever I can to bear with you in the cleanup of the sin, in the brokenness of your family. But I want you to know something. You don't have forever to straighten it out. You have to get busy with God. Because He's going to visit you. And there's a breaking point in a person's life. I I don't like to ever say God gives up on people. I think... That that's kind of not the best way to say it. I think what God says is, you have excluded me, and therefore I'm going to let your exclusion apply. Okay, think that through. You have excluded me, I'm going to let your exclusion apply. I'm going to let you taste of what it's like without me. I'm not talking about a believer. I don't believe God forsakes a believer. I'm talking about a person who is an unbeliever who is trying to work through and to get to the place of salvation and true faith in Christ. I do believe that there's a point of discipline in a Christian's life that he'll take your life. He says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, because of this sin among you and you taking the Lord's Supper haphazardly, some among you are weak, some are sick, and a number sleep. And he's saying, I took you. Because you just wouldn't be disciplined. They were believers and the Lord took them. But in this instance here, these people, they're about to reach their expiration date. And God is going to let their godlessness be what gets them. They want a life apart from God. God says, I'm going to show you what that life's like. So he finishes it with this statement. Verse 28. Where are your gods which you made for yourself? Let them arise. So Jeremiah is preaching this early in his ministry. But it's a sermon that goes across the span of his ministry. It's a prophetic sermon that goes across the span all the way to the end of his ministry. When the people falsely call out to God to help them and God doesn't help them. He lets the city be overrun and it's beyond our, we don't know what it's like. We don't have anything in recent history that we can compare it to. The Germans had a little bit of this tendency, but they never got enough land to really carry out this kind of thing. The Babylonians were brutal. 
And they said, man, when we when we sack your city, we're making sure it can't unsack. And so we're going to fix it so you can't. It'll take, you know, decades or centuries to rebuild your city if we get a hold of it. So that's how they work. So last phrase, verse 28. Uh, in the time of your trouble, let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. In other words, they, 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 they had so multiplied their deities that gods were as common as towns. And God's saying, yeah, let that group, let that horde, let that number of gods raise up and come help you. See how that works for you. Heartbreaking. Okay, we'll move into some other, more things. Questions? Commentary thoughts uh, as we kind of wrap things up tonight in a very depressing sermon, by the way, that Jeremiah's given. This not there just wasn't much encouragement in there, but it's truth. Things you want to ask about or ponder on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rebellion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We need to be so praying for people that we'd have to be told not to. <laughs> you know, because obviously Jeremiah's really been praying to God about these people and God finally says, oh, excuse me, you're done. So, yeah, heartbreaking. It seems it seems that almost all of it is tied to a particular time when the people came into the land and they didn't obey God about the destruction of the worship centers and the worship leaders, uh, that they were to kill those worship leaders and they were to destroy and utterly dismantle Every one of those high places. Because they inherited the high place concept. Israel didn't come with a high place concept out of the wilderness. They inherited the high place concept from the Canaanite people. And God was judging the Canaanite people with Israel for doing the things Israel ended up doing that God said, you're worse than the people who started here. So I'm going to judge you like I judged them. And so it seems that if there is one place that you could backtrack it to, it was not cleaning house of these things. And these things took hold. And so I think that this goes back, David, to this, the infectious nature. You say, you know, we're going to keep a couple of those cultural centers open because we think that it would be good for us to remember the history of the Canaanite people. And to kind of ponder on that and maybe go and visit those exhibits on occasion. And when God said, you destroy it. You utterly, completely destroy it. And his 
words were very clear. And so I think that's when it starts. So it's disobedience back here leads to infectious nature of sin up here. Good question. And the kings did try to eradicate it. Remember, we talked a little bit about Josiah and his reforms, and he was actually during this time of Jeremiah's ministry trying to clear some of that up right at the very early part of his ministry. He's trying to clear some of that up, but the people don't take to it. If you didn't hear David's question, he was saying, can we backtrack to a place where where they're at in Jeremiah kind of began? And I was saying, yeah, we can backtrack it back to them not destroying the high places and the worship leaders and the Canaanite people that were attached to those shrines. Uh, They were told not to have any mercy on that. Just everybody had to die and everything had to be destroyed. It was not a negotiable. I think I can worship God in a better way than God thinks I can worship God. Isn't that weird? I think I can worship God in a better way than God thinks I can worship God. That's human stupidity at its best. Yeah. Yeah. It's what, you know, uh, Nadab and Abihu did. Other questions? Thoughts? Kind of bleak, isn't it? There will be some lights in Jeremiah, but there won't be many. So bear with me if you think, man, this is just so severe. It is severe. And, and, and what's really helpful for us is to understand that the severity of the message was because of the severity of what was coming. Which means sometimes we need to make sure that our message of the gospel carries the real picture of hell. I don't think we need to camp on hell. I think we need to camp on heaven. But I think hell needs to be clear. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and the, the scary thing is, is the same kind of denial is attached Yeah. Uh huh. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yes. You're right. <laughs> yeah. 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 You. Yeah. And I was sharing, we, we were sharing, I went down to um, uh, meet with an endocrinologist in, um, uh, in what's the, Lafayette, uh, this past week. And so we got there, and he's a, a seasoned man. He's not old, but he's got several years, probably late 50s, early 60s. And he's from Syria. Really interesting guy. 
And so we sit down with him and he comes in and I told him, I said, I, I cannot tag your accent. He said, well, where do you think I'm from? I said, well, I'm going to tell you that you're from somewhere that sits on the Mediterranean Sea. He said, yeah. And I said, I don't think that it's Greek, but I think it's further over, but I don't think it goes all the way down into Israel. He said, yeah. So finally, I hit Jordan and I hit Turkey. I hit he said, Syria. So um, we had some good conversation, really sharp guy, but this was an interesting part of it. Sherry was telling how she has a lot of friends who, when she was getting ready to get her thyroid taken out, there were a lot of folks saying, oh, don't get your thyroid taken out. There's this research done today, and if you'll take all this health foods and get on these things. And you know, Sherry was really struggling with that, because sometimes there's some truth in those things. She's really struggling with it. And so when she got it taken out, thankfully she got it taken out, because it needed to come out. Hers was really bad. And so the doctor was really funny. So Sherry said, well, what, what do you feel like? Do you feel like I should have left it in? And he kind of sat back in his chair and he said, tell your friends that if they will buy a bottle of wine and bring it and meet with me after work one day, we'll drink that wine together and I will explain to them in the best medical expertise that I have how wrong they are. He said, with the Google, everybody has an opinion. And they all think that Dr. Google can take care of them best. I was thinking, man, this guy's great. I'm going to bring wine and sit with him. You know, I mean, he's just laying out there. But, but the thing, everybody has an opinion. And now with the Internet and Twitter and Facebook, everybody's opinion can get out there. You know, back in the day, you couldn't get your opinion at past your barn. You know, you just got to talk with your friends and neighbors around your barn. Now you can get your opinion to China by a tweet. Well, that doesn't mean, and the doctor said, just because they have an opinion doesn't mean it has any value. Because there has to be something behind an opinion that makes a difference. So he went on to tell Sherry about the condition that she actually had and why her thyroid coming out was actually the best thing for her and what was going to happen if she didn't. It was really good, but everybody's got an opinion. And right now it seems like to disagree with somebody is the worst thing in the world. Who are you? But God disagrees with a lot of folks. And... I just stand with Him. And I've disagreed with God before and always been wrong. I have. Haven't you ever been trying to work through a Scripture and say, oh, it can't, that can't be. That can't, that can't be. He's got to, that's got to be metaphorical or something. You know, I'm trying, and then I keep reading and go, no, that's exactly what He said. <laughs> and, and when you have to work through those kind of texts, like the text about Jeremiah having to stop to pray. I mean, the idea that... God would ever tell anybody to stop praying for anyone. Who is God that he could say that? He's God. (laughs) That's exactly who he is. So, yeah, it's hard. Other thoughts? We've got one minute, two minutes. Anything you want to share? Maybe something from this morning's message you wanted to ask about. I did cut myself off on that earlier. Anything you want to ask about that? Had some folks alert me to the fact they were felt like they were eating too much cornbread too, and they needed to work on that in their own house. So uh, yeah, anything.
Well, as we go home today, I just want you to be aware of two things. I want you to be aware of the infectious nature of sin. There is no sin that we can intentionally welcome and continually practice that will not infect everything else. Other side is, if in your mind just now you thought that you that I was wrong, you're in denial. <laughs> so you're already lining up in trouble with Jeremiah, okay? Sin is not something to be tamed. It can't be. It's beyond your capacity. It is something we flee. Yes, Cliff. Rule number one. That's, that's the way with God. Absolutely. So please, if you are entertaining, keeping, um, holding on to, cherishing some sinful thing in your life, today is a great day to get rid of it. Because at some point, it will move beyond its containment structure. It will outgrow its containment structure. And it will be like nuclear disaster. Once it breaks the containment structure, it spreads its poison everywhere. It's dangerous. So let's pray. God, help us by the mercies of Jesus to be good stewards with what we're learning. In Jesus' name, amen.